The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, we're talking to Michael Watcott. Michael, do you want to say hi and remind people who you are? Hey guys, uh, Go Developer at Smarty Streets. I uh, was featured on the Clean Code series called Go with Intensity on cleancoders.com. We did a case study in writing a simple application in Go and uh, here to talk a little bit about just Go today and getting started. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on View podcast. Every week we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. Yeah, we've talked to your partner in crime over there, uh, Jonathan. And yeah, we did an episode. It was live at a restaurant, which feels totally foreign these days. Right. But yeah, anyway, so before we dive into Go, I'm a little curious just, yeah, what does life look like for you these days? Well, working from home, that's different. We always really just valued the in-person experience, collaborating in person, drawing on whiteboards, passing the keyboard from one person to the next. And now we're figuring out how that works over a Zoom meeting or a Google Hangout or whatever. Right. Haven't gone anywhere really for the last month, or I don't even know how long it's been. But yeah, we're just figuring out how life works when you're just at home all the time. And luckily, the weather's been pretty good and we have... Yeah. Nice yard for the kids to play in, and we have we got everything we need, so we're good. A lot of good people deal. are struggling, so we're we're fortunate. We feel, we feel fortunate anyway. Yep, and we we live in the same general area. The governor just announced that kids aren't going to be going back to school at all, right? This school year and things like that. So yeah, definitely some changes going on. But yeah, let's let's dive into Go. Let's let's talk about Go. Now I've never actually written in Go at all. Uh, I guess what I'm wondering just to get things rolling is what's the best way to get started? I mean, is it just something I can install on my computer and then just write code in or yeah, it there's used some to setup be, involved? It used to be a lot harder. There was this thing called GoPath, an environment variable you had to set and all your code had to be in this directory structure so that the compiler could all could put it all together. You know, one of the things that made Go different in the beginning was that you didn't need a project file, like an XML file to for the compiler to pull everything Mm -hmm. together. You didn't need a make file to to iron out dependencies and such. But what you did have to have was this Go environment or Go workspace. And that's all changed now that modules have been introduced. So yeah, you just install Go and it's a command line tool. It's a a compiler. It's a test runner. It's a formatter. it's, It's many things all in one. And all you have to do is say Go mod in it in a new directory create a Go file called main.go or whatever.go really. It just needs to have package main and func main and func.println hello world and you're off and running. That's that's a working program. And you just say go run main.go at the command line and, and it'll run. So right. it, it really isn't hard to get started nowadays with module support. So yeah, that's the first challenge. It's just hello world in your own computer with your own running Go compiler. Makes sense. So I'm guessing I just brew install it on my Mac or... Yeah, yeah, brew works. Or you can just go to the golang.org slash DL for download. Mm-hmm. And you, you can find the installer for your platform and, and you're off you. to the races. 
And then it sounds like there's a build step. So is it compiled? Yeah. So there's there's go build, which will actually produce an executable for your platform. Mm-hmm. Or you can just, there's a little shortcut called go run and you list the files you want to include in the compile and it'll just compile it in a temporary location and run it for you. And that's probably the the easiest first step. Just go run main.go. Gotcha. And and it'll run it. Now, does it do like the funky bytecode thing that Java does or does it compile it down to actual, similar to what you would get out of say C or something like that where it just runs on your machine? Yeah, it's more like C. It, it actually produces a binary that's executable and, and you could just send that to your friend who doesn't have Go installed uh, as long as they're on the same platform and it'll run. Now, another neat, neat feature of Go is that you can cross-compile. You just set a few environment variables that says this is the architecture that I want you to compile for and the OS and, and you can compile a Linux binary or a, an ARM binary or you know, there's a bunch of platforms supported now. It's, it's pretty much a self-contained executable. When you get into Docker, there are a few things to learn about, but that's, that's probably beyond the beginner stage. Yeah, Docker's another conversation. So. Yeah. so when I get into Go, if I've spent time programming in object-oriented languages like Java or Ruby or .NET, is, is it going to be much of a stretch for me or is it more akin to some of the functional languages like Lisp or Scheme or things like that? Uh, yeah, it's not. It's not. It's probably closer to your object-oriented languages than to a functional language. Even though you can, of course, do functional programming and ob- object-oriented programming using Go. There's nothing mm-hmm. to restrain that. So, as opposed to classes in other languages, you have structs in Go, and a okay. struct can just be a data structure, or it can also have methods attached to it, and and that feels a lot like you know defining functions or methods on a class in other object-oriented languages. The syntax is a little bit different. Like, for instance, in Python or Java, when you define a method on a class, that method is indented within the scope of the class definition. And that isn't the case in Go. You, you define your structure, and then in a totally separate statement in the same package, you define the function, and there's a there's a, a little part of the function signature called the receiver. Mm-hmm. It's like, it looks like a parameter list, and it is, in fact. And it just has one parameter, which is the type or the struct type that you just defined. And that's how you attach a method to your struct. And uh, you can implement interfaces, just like in Java. Mm-hmm. The main difference is that you don't have to take a hard dependency on the interface you're implementing, which is right. an interesting property in, you know, Languages like Python, interfaces are just implicitly Im- implemented. There is no interface definition. It's just if it if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's a duck. Mm-hmm. In Go, it's kind of the same thing. You can implement an interface without explicitly referencing that interface from from your implementation, right. which is great. And that's a fun thing to to experiment with and just convince yourself that it does work and. And a lot of the standard library of Go is based on that principle. You don't actually have to import the IO writer interface to implement mm-hmm. that interface. It's really nice. Yeah, Ruby is the language that I'm most familiar with duck typing in. And yeah, we use it all over the place, right? As long as it'll respond to yep. the method that you called on it, then you're good to go. Then it and works. It doesn't. Yep. And you just have yeah, to hope it does. Your test coverage is good. Yeah, true. It also gives you the option of importing modules. So if you wanted to define 
uh, a particular interface, then you can do that in a module, but you tend to give it like default functionality within the module, right? And then when you pull it in, you can override that if you need to. So, well, an interface declaration doesn't have any behavior. It's just right. stating, it's just a listing of methods yep. that, that you would need to implement. You can, there is a concept like inheritance and overriding. It's called embedding. Okay. Uh, it's a little different though. And, and that's, that's probably not a, not a beginner thing either, but it's, that's a fun technique and you can use it. I mean, we use it at Smarty Streets here and there in some mm-hmm. of our libraries to make life easier. But again, embedding is a lot like inheritance in that it's a pretty f- strong form of coupling. And right. so you, you, you use it with care. Yeah, and I think that's more what we're looking at with uh, the module system in Ruby versus direct class inheritance, which it also has. I'm, I'm curious, like what kinds of things do people build in Go? I mean, you're working on web-based <laughs> applications, correct? Yeah, if you're doing HTTP servers, Go is perfect. You don't have to think about concurrent requests, the standard library just spins up a new Go routine, as it's called, for each request that's mm-hmm. co- that comes in. So yeah, if you're doing network programming, especially HTTP servers, Go is a great fit. I've written a lot of scripts that make use of Go's concurrency primitives. That's that's one of the main attractions of Go is the concurrency primitives. It's very easy, well, easy-ish, easier than most languages to spin up coroutines, as you may have heard them called. In Go, they call them Go routines. Mm-hmm. For instance, if you have a, uh, a little web scraper that you're writing and you want it to scrape a bunch of pages or something or send a bunch of requests to an API, you can just do a for loop and the body of the for loop is simply Go and you invoke your function. So there's a Go keyword mm-hmm. that invokes or backgrounds a function. So you could just background all these functions that you want to run and give them each a little reference to a wait group. And then they, they tell the wait group when they're finished. And then in your main Go routine, you, you block all the wait group being finished or decrementing all the way to zero. And, and that's a really simple way of spinning up a bunch of Go routines to do that kind of thing. Now, if you're, if you're doing a program that's really CPU intensive, then you'd probably want to do more of like a fan out, fan in strategy where you have like 10 different go routines all reading from a channel that has work items that you put on right and that's a little bit more advanced but it's still something that you know as a beginner to the language you you need to learn how to grapple with how to fan out and fan back in appropriately that's a really great exercise there's a great article on the go blog i think it's called go concurrency patterns and it talks about pipelining and fan in and fan out Mm -hmm. it's it's a great article. There's there's lots of great articles on the Go blog, by the way. You should should check that out if you're just getting started. Right. So if I understand correctly, essentially what you can do is you can either say, you know, I have 50 pages to crawl. And so, yeah, you just put it in a for loop and then you spin up a new process for each. The co- It's a Go routine, but it's a separate process, right, for each page not you're a crawling. a separate process. Uh, if we're going to get, you know, technical, it's it's... And it might not even be a separate thread. The Go runtime schedules all of this stuff. Whenever it gets to a call that is blocking, like a network operation or printing to the screen, mm-hmm. loading something from disk, whenever it happens, whenever it gets to one of those calls, it goes out and says, are there any other Go routines I should, any other uh, plates I, I should spin? So concurrency is not exactly parallelism, but if you have multiple cores on your machine, it may make use of them. It may actually run things in parallel, depending on how you have 
things con- uh, configured. And by default, it does make use of multiple processors. But just just to be clear, concurrency is not exactly parallelism. Right. They are different Fair concepts. Enough. And so, yeah, if you've got like 50 things you need to do, you can spin up 50 go routines without issue, and it'll just get to them when it can. And yep. depending on how much CPU is involved, that may be a good strategy or it may not. I got In the you. case where you've got 5,000 things you need to do and they're all CPU intense, a better approach would probably be to create a Go routine for each one of your processors or core uh-huh. uh, threads and uh, pass all of those work items to a channel and each of your 10 workers or eight workers or 16 workers is reading off of that same channel to process the work. Mm-hmm. And then they send the results to another channel that your main Go routine is, is listening on. That's, that's a very simple fan out. It, you can get more fancy, but that's that's the beginnings of Go concurrency. That makes sense. And so the concurrency model, it sounds a lot more like Node.js where the node, yeah, you know, you get blocked on IO or something like that. Yeah, it just schedules the next job in its place and works that. And, you know, it, it may rotate through them or it may, you know, wait until the next one blocks or whatever, you know, there are different strategies for that. But the difference is, is that Node is uh, bound, or at least it has been in the past, bound to just one processor. You have the node pro- process running on just one processor and it looks sounds like Go can actually take advantage of multiple processors. Oh yeah, yeah. On that it's, scheduling. It's a lot of fun. You can really max out performance on your box. and It's fun to tinker and tune the, the way you're, you're doing something in order to you know, eke out every last little processor yep. cycle. That sounds really, really fun. Now I kind of want to go play with it and see what I can get away with. Are, are people writing other kinds of apps in Go? I mean, IoT or desktop apps or even mobile apps? It's possible. The The desktop app scen- uh, scenario is pretty strong. You can do, there's like integrate integrations with Electron and other like mm-hmm. frameworks like that. But I haven't done a whole lot of that kind of thing. I'm more of a CLI kind of right. a... But, if I'm working on a UI, you know it's desperate and bad. So that's just not, <laughs> that's not my thing. So I, I don't know a whole lot about that. So yeah, web apps are are even a stretch. Most of our web app stuff is we implement a a JSON API, and then there's you know front end code that you know JavaScript code that that presents that nicely to the user. So most of our Go work is very back endy and not uh, a UI, unless you're talking about a CLI. That makes sense. So, yeah. So, so what's kind of the workflow that you work in when you're working on Go? Well, I do a lot of TDD. What what the, testing library do you use? That, that's a great subject to talk about. When you first start in Go and you start reading the FAQ, and th- there actually is a testing package in the standard library, and there is a mm-hmm. Go test command, Go test tool that you can invoke, and it will go find all your tests and run them as long as you have created your tests in the way that the Go standard library expects you to. And that's a great tool. And and everything we do is built off of those two um, tools, the standard library testing package and the Go test running, the Go test run tool. But the the FAQ says, hey, how come there's a, a question there? How come you don't have my favorite like assertion should equal kind of thing, kind of method? How come I have to do like my own comparisons of the results and, and format my own error messages. Mm-hmm. And the Go standard library authors basically just say, we don't think that's a good way to do it. So we don't provide that. 
uh, you should just do what we do. <laughs> and they do a thing called table-driven tests a lot, which is like triangulation, if you've heard of that term in, in, in other mm -hmm. testing circles. It's basically you define a test case structure with an input value and some expected output values, and you do a for loop over each of those test cases, that, that mm -hmm. a slice or an array of test cases, and you run your behavior passing in the test input, getting the actual output and comparing it with the expected. And if they're not equal, you actually have to write an if statement to do that comparison. If they're not equal, you call a, an error log function on the, the, the standard library test thing. So you have to write all of your own assertions by hand and format all of your test failure output by hand, which if you've come from another language that uses like an X unit style yep. test library or a BDD style library, you, you haven't ever had to do that. Like that, you've been spoiled rotten by those uh, <laughs> I know, when, it sounds so backward to me. And when we came to Go, we weren't, we for sure weren't going to write our own, you know, comparisons on every test and format our uh, test output every time. Mm -hmm. So we started tinkering and writing our own little libraries on top of the Go standard library. The first one was called Go Convey. And it actually, you know, made Hacker News and got popular. This was like six years ago. And so we had, we had to leave it because <laughs> it got popular and uh, everyone wanted it to do what they wanted it to do, to do. And we actually just figured out a few better ways to to write tests that were that fit our use case better. And so mm -hmm. uh, I wrote a, a library called GUnit. It's the Go X unit. Right. Uh, at least that's that was my thinking. And we've used that for probably five or six years now. And it's been great. We have our own little assertion library that has should equal and should be greater than and should be less. All those mm -hmm. just a grisondle right. of methods that you might want to call in your tests to make life easy. So my recommendation is whenever you see something in the FAQ or in the community that, that just doesn't jive with the way you want to write software, don't feel like Go isn't for you. Just go out and figure out how you want it to be, write it and, and make it happen. And it's okay to go against the grain. You just have to accept the, the fact that you're going a little bit against the grain and that people might give you flack for that in the community. Uh, the Go community is great in that everyone's helpful and wants to help you achieve your goals, there are a few strong opinions in the Go community, such right. as don't use a test framework, just use the standard library. There are some other strong opinions like you shouldn't use generic receiver names like this or self, like Python or Java or C Sharp uh -huh. tend to use. JavaScript, Ruby, all of them. Yeah, do. yeah. Basically everybody, all the object-oriented languages use this or self or some generic name to, to, to help it, to help you know what you're operating on. What class am mm -hmm. I operating on? And in Go, they recommend that you just use the first letter of the, the type that that method is a function of. Or if, yeah, the first letter of the type that that method pertains to. So if you're writing a class called foo, the receiver name would just be F. And we don't like that because what if you rename the type? Do you have to rename all the receivers? So we just, we kind of stay away from that. And we just use this, which means that whenever you run the Go vet tool, which you know tells you that you're you might be doing something wrong, it it, it whines, it complains at you. So we, we just <laughs> we just silence that one and move on, and everything's fine. So that would also be my another bit of advice for newcomers: is don't don't be afraid to go against the grain. Just have a good reason for it and understand 
you know, why, right. why they want you to do that. And then if you have a better reason for overriding it, go ahead and do it. It's, it's okay. Yeah. So does go not have an implicit receiver then? So like in Ruby, for example, you no. don't have to type in self. And so they, oh, right. you know, you, if you type something in, it just assumes self dot. And yeah, so, so all of the style guides tell you don't put in self dot because it's understood. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not implicit like that. It, it, it actually looks exactly like a parameter and it, it is a parameter. It's like any other input parameter you would pass to a function. It's just that you don't have to worry about passing it. Right. It, the compiler passes it. That sounds more like functional programming to me than object-oriented programming. Well, sort of, but it still looks like object-oriented. You would, it, when you're invoking yeah. a method on an object, you still say foo.invokeMyMethod and pass in other right. inputs. It still looks like object-oriented invocations, but when you define the function... You say func, and then in parentheses, your receiver with its name and its type, and then you give the name of the function, and then the other list of arguments, which are the actual inputs to that function. I gotcha. So there's, there's up to three parameter lists in a Go function declaration. There's the receiver, wow. there's the inputs, and then there's the return. And you can have multiple returns in a Go function, mm-hmm. which, which makes life interesting. There's a pretty particular and common error handling pattern, which is that if you're making a, a method, say, to parse a date time, or, or even better, parse an integer, there are methods for this in the standard library, but if you wanted to define your own, it would probably be wise for this function to return the integer, but also an error in case they passed garbage to this function. Mm-hmm. So most, most parsing functions or, or anything that could fail returns a result that's appropriate to the situation, as well as an error value. And so you're always uh-huh. having to check, you save the two values to two separate variables and you check that error. Is it nil or not nil? And if it's not nil, deal with it. If it is nil, well, then the result is probably a valid, good looking result that you can run with. Uh, right. So handling errors, that's another uh, important concept for beginners. There's a great article on the Go blog and you can see lots of examples of it everywhere in everyone's code because we all have to handle errors. And I guess I should also say that error handling is, that's a difference from Java or, or you know, .NET. You don't just throw exceptions willy-nilly in, in Go. There, there are no exceptions. You can panic, which is kind of similar. You can even recover from a panic. But the rather than throw an exception on bad input, you return an error for the caller to deal with. And that's, it's a very different approach uh, mm. that you have to get used to. Yeah, that makes sense. It's... Of course, it makes you think about the error or exception handling all the way up the chain then. That's true. Yep. There's better functionality now in the last few releases of Go that allow you to wrap errors inside other errors. So if, mm-hmm. when you get a low-level error, you can wrap it in your a higher-level error and still maintain the context there. And so there, there is, it is getting nicer. I'm kind of curious just what the like update schedule is right i mean some communities like python or ruby they have you know a small team of people and the versions just come out when they come out right sure and then you've got others like node.js for example they're based on the v8 engine but they have like i think it's a three month or six month release cycle and so Uh they put it out on a regular basis what what does that look like for go how often do you get updates to go go is very uh, steady in that the release cycle for new big versions is every six months. Okay. And uh, right now, all of the versions, the public, you know, the versions that have been released start with one dot something. 
And there is a what the Go team calls the Go Go One compatibility promise, which mm-hmm. is that releases that say one dot will not break existing code. Okay. So they've they've made a promise that they won't remove features or change features in a breaking way. Your programs should just if you wrote it in 1.0, it should continue to run in 1.14, which is the latest release. Now, there are, I think, some tiny little exceptions to that, depending on how the runtime has changed over time. But for now, if if you're on 1.0, then your code should just keep running. There are discussions about possible breaking changes to the language, which would be Go 2. One of the hot topics is generics. Go has never had support for generics. You can't define your own custom list type that can operate over any any type gracefully. There are a few limited standard library types or built-in types, I should say, a map, a slice, which is like an array. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also has arrays. And those can those are generic. You can have a, an array of strings or an array of integers. You can have a map with a integer key type and a string value type, but you can't actually define your own data structures like a set. There's no set in the Go standard library, much to many of our chagrin. But uh, that's hopefully coming in the future, but it it might introduce breaking changes or it might not. They they haven't figured out how to do it in a way that they're comfortable with. So every six months you get, you know, a new point release of the language. So we just barely got Go 1.14 recently. We'll get Go 1.15 in you know, three or four months, I think. And they release uh, little fixes and security uh, updates whenever they need to in between that six-month mm-hmm. cycle. I think we're on, what, Go 1.14.2? Let me check that. Yeah, Go 1.14.2 right. is what I'm on. So it's a pretty steady release cycle. So how strongly typed is it? I mean, it sounds like it's It's very strong. strongly typed. Okay. So when you declare say, an array, you have to tell it it's an array of ints or an yes. array of... Okay. Yes. Because I've seen some languages that are strongly typed on, say, <laughs> objects or on, you know, basic data types, but then you get into the complex types and it's like, whatever you want, right? You can put whatever you want yeah. in there. So if you're going to mix types, you're probably going to name them and put them into a struct. Yeah. Any variable you declare has a type and you can't assign something of an incompatible right. type to that variable. Right. Does it automatically do typecasting then? Or do you have to write the typecasting or use the typecasting in the standard library? So some types, for instance, let's say you have an integer and an unsigned integer. You can convert various integer types one to another, numeric types. They can be converted rather easily. You may lose precision, etc. Right. When a when you have a type that you want, let's say you've you've passed something to a function. And it receives, that function receives basically the equivalent of object, which is an empty interface mm-hmm. in Go. And you want to cast that thing back to what you think it was previously. That would be called a type assertion in Go. And there are two flavors of it. There's the safe version and the non-safe version. You can either ask for a single result of that type assertion, which if the type assertion fails, you'll get a panic and you'd have right. to recover that, which... If you haven't thought of doing you, it won't happen. There's the safe type assertion where you ask for two variables, one being the converted variable and the other being a Boolean, which tells you whether it worked or not. And that doesn't panic if it doesn't work. It just returns false in that Boolean. So you can convert things, but depending on how careful you are, it may not be a safe operation. Makes sense. 
A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. One other thing that I'm, I'm wondering about is libraries. So if I want to go pull in some third-party library, do you have a package manager or something using Go like in other languages? Yes, that's called modules, Go modules. And that's something that landed, well, there were various experiments going on in the community up until around Go 1.11, Go 1.12, and then the Go team released their their official, this is what we're going to do, modules support. And so when you start a new project, you say go mod init. That's a command that allows you to define a module file, which is a, a file called go.mod at the top level of your pro, your project. And it would list all the dependencies. And you can say go get github.com slash whatever user slash whatever repository. And it'll actually pull that into a cache and listed as one of your dependencies. There's fine-grained control over which version you want. And if, you actually, if you're a, a module author and you publish a breaking change, the, the right way to do that is to modify that project's module file to have a V2 at the end of it. It's mm-hmm. essentially a new package, a new module that you're publishing. Um, I got gotcha. Because it has a breaking change. So that's all outlined on the Go uh, in the Go docs and in the Go blog, but it's definitely something you would want to start grappling with as soon as you need an external dependency. But it's all yeah, it's all sense. very nice, and and we've really enjoyed the the module system. It, it works great. Yeah, it sounds terrific. You know, it wasn't terrific for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I remember the old days of NPM and Ruby Gems, and yeah, you, you kind of have to learn some of these lessons. If you have a nice polished system, it looks like it should be pretty straightforward to build. Oh, no. <laughs> but then you get into the dependency management and some of the other things that you run into with it. And it's like, it's just yeah, quite as straightforward as I wanted, right? Yeah, so. it's, a, it's a great time to be jumping into Go. Like now that modules are ironed out, the, the release schedule's good. Like there's so many libraries out there to do whatever you need to do in general. It, it really is a nice time to start programming and go. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there sort of a standard starter project that people go build with it? I mean, oh, I've, I've done a whole bunch of different languages and it's like, oh, go do this with it, right? Right. Well, I, I kind of have my own set of exercises I do whenever I'm learning a new language. You know, if you do code katas, you'll be familiar with, you know, the prime factors kata mm-hmm. or the bowling game kata or, you know, something I always like to build is... Uh, you know, you can build something that calculates a mortgage payment. That's a pretty easy thing. Or, you know, gener- generate the MD5 hash of a file. Right. If you if you get into puzzles, you can go to the adventofcode.com mm-hmm. and, and pick a puzzle. Well, probably day one is what you'd want to start with. If you have an API that you like to hit for certain data, write an API client. I have a little blog generator. You know, there's a really popular Go project called Hugo, 
Yep. And it, it builds uh, static sites. And I used Hugo for quite a while until I just decided, yeah, I want to build my own. I want to have total control over what I publish on my website. So I, I built what I call Uguinho, which is how you'd say little Hugo in Portuguese. And it's, it's, it was a really fun experiment. It probably is way more complicated than it needed to be, but I was experimenting with some things and that's a fun, that's a fun project. I think building your own blog generator, Mm -hmm. Uh, build a little console spinner. Like if you're building a CLI app and you want to have like a a progress bar or a little spinner saying it's busy, uh, that's a fun project that forces you to deal with go routines a little bit because you want to have this spinner off in the background while your program, you know, does its hard work and you need to signal to that background process or background go routine that it's finished and should stop. I like to build a little budget app or a task manager. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of things you could do with go if you're, you know, needing ideas, but you could be like me and build your own test framework. That's what I do when when I'm (laughs) bored. That sounds like pain to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What, what kinds of things are people going to run into as gotchas getting into go? Oh, there's lots of fun gotchas. So never panic with nil. Never pass nil to panic because you won't be able to recover it. <laughs> you won't be able to tell what was, what if anything was passed to panic or that panic was even called. That's a fun gotcha. When you're spinning up go routines that need state, like mm-hmm. we, we talked about running a for loop and spinning off a go routine for each item in, in your loop. If you're passing an item to the function that's being run in a go routine, there's a gotcha there where if it's an anonymous function that you're defining right there in your for loop and you're just passing the item that you're ranging over, that you're looping over, by the time that anonymous function gets to being run, your for loop may have proceeded beyond that item and it may actually be referring not to the item you thought you passed it, but it might be referring to the latest item or the last item in the loop. So you have to make sure to pass things to the function as arguments. Don't just refer to things in the anonymous function. I gotcha. That, that's a gotcha when you're, when you're first learning about go routines and for loops. Uh, there's a cool behavior or a cool built-in thing called defer. So you can defer a function to be run just as the function is returning. So if you've ever like needed to uh, return a value and then increment it after returning it, in C++ or Java, you'd, you'd, you'd use the plus plus operator, which is a mm-hmm. post increment. Well, in Go, you can't do a plus plus and return that value all in one statement. So right. you defer a function that does the plus plus and return the value. And so the return statement gets the current value, and then the deferred function runs after the, the return and does the plus plus. And defer is, is the only way you can actually recover a panic. You can only recover in a deferred function. And it's a great way to ensure that files get closed or that streams get reset or that, you know, that cleanup logic happens even in a panic scenario. So defer is a good thing to learn, but there's some gotchas there. You can go to the Go blog. There's a great article on defer and panic and recover that, hand, that talks about all of that. At some point, you have to understand the difference between slices and arrays and, and how slices are backed by arrays. Oh, there's no like, uh, the array type is a fixed length in Go. The slice type is dynamic, but it's always backed by an underlying array. And slices aren't quite as convenient as, say, lists 
in other object-oriented languages, you can't just like call append to a slice. You actually have to pass your slice and the thing you want to append to the built-in append function, which returns a new slice potentially that you have to reassign to the old slice. So working with slices is <laughs> at first very cumbersome and, and feels just awkward. There's a great little slice tricks wiki article on the Go, the GitHub Go project. That uh-huh. you Google Go slice tricks, and it it gives you some ready-made formulas for inserting and deleting and reordering and uh, doing all the things you need to do with slices because you don't know how because you're you've been spoiled with object-oriented lists. Uh, those are some good gotchas. Boy, what else? Oh, assignment and declaration is kind of a mess in Go. There's lots of different ways to declare and assign variables. And so that's something you kind of need to grapple with. Oh, pointers versus not pointers. When you're dealing with structs, that's another thing to, to deal with. I hope I'm not overwhelming you. Uh, <laughs> any language has, you know, it's things you've got to just deal with at yeah. some point. But uh, that that's a taste of some of the things you'll you'll be frustrated by in the beginning. Some things you'll be delighted by are the Go Fumped tool. Go FMT, short for format. In Go, there is no argument about where to put your opening curly brace. There is no argument about how white space should work for the most part, because there's this tool called GoFumped that everybody uses, and it just formats your code how it thinks it should be formatted. And the saying is, the style employed by GoFumped is nobody's favorite, but GoFumped is everybody's favorite. So it just kind of solves all those debates about you know where to put braces and how to space things out and it's really nice that's that's a delightful thing about the go tooling when we first started hardly any editors supported uh go or had any fancy refactorings or navigation mm-hmm. features but now you know jetbrains has an editor sublime text has plugins vs code has plugins VI right. has plugins. Everybody has plugins for Go that do great things. So you can basically just pick whatever editor you've always used and Go is going to work great. It's going to be awesome. What else is great about Go? Oh, there's some neat things you can do with like, uh, well, there's, there's some differences regarding the syntax. Have you ever had like an if-else chain or block where it, uh, the first if doesn't succeed, but you would want that the you would want some of the result from the check that you just did to be available in the if else. So in Go, when you say if, you can actually do an assignment statement right there. Yeah. Put a semicolon and then do the check on like the result of that assignment statement that you just called. So there's there's interesting ways to perform an assignment as you're doing an if, and that assignment is only scoped for that if else block. It's not part of the oh, local. interesting the local uh, function that you're in. And same thing with, uh, oh, when you learn about loops, there are there's one loop statement in Go and it's called for. You might be wondering, well, where's my while loop? Well, it's just spelled for. It's spelled F4. <laughs> A traditional for loop has three parts to it, right? There's the declar- the initializer, there's the, uh-huh. the condition that tells you when you should terminate, yeah. and then there's the incrementer. And you can just omit the initializer and the incrementer and all you have in the middle is a condition. And that's basically a while loop. While yeah. this condition is true, loop. So that's handled. And then there's also a, a range loop that uh, allows you to iterate over a collection. Yeah, so looping is... And, and the, the range loop actually gives you back two things. It gives you back the index 
into the mm-hmm. collection as well as the actual item. So it's kind of like the enumerate function in Python, but you just get it by default. So that's nice. Boy, that's those are all the gotchas and, and goodies that I can think of off the top of my head. Yep. So one other thing that I'm wondering, it sounds like it, it's compiled, you know, like oh, Rust yeah. or C. So yes. I'm assuming it's wicked fast. It is really fast. They, in the beginning, the Go compiler was written in C and it was pretty fast. And then around, I think, Go 1.4, 1.5, they actually started, they rewrote the compiler in the previous version of Go. Right. And at that point, it, it got slow for a while. The compiler was slow, but they've been speeding it up and optimizing it. And it really is fast. I was just watching uh, a screencast by somebody that was doing some coding and they were in the, the JVM and they were lamenting the startup time of the JVM just to do the oh, compile yeah. and run their tests. And, and, and the comment was made, boy, if, if we were in Go right now, this would be near instantaneous. There is no you know, JVM. There is no bytecode interpreter to, to deal with. It's, it, it compiles fast and it runs yep. fast. Yeah, that, that's always been the, the rub that I've run into with Java and JVM languages. Is, yeah, it's like, well, it compiles and they optimize a whole bunch of stuff but then you have to wait for the JVM to fire up yeah. <laughs> and load everything in. And then it's, you know, it's reasonably fast. So yeah, when we're yeah. running tests, it's, it's really snappy. We do TDD yeah. a lot and the tests just run really quick, even for the whole project, you know, many packages being built. Mm-hmm. So when you're running your test, does it compile your test suite and then run it? Yeah, it has to do a compile. And, yeah. and the way tests work, it, it actually generates a main routine for you uh, that you don't really have to, you don't see mm-hmm. that. It's not very visible. You can actually right. run go test dash C and actually see the test binary be produced and invoke it yourself. Mm-hmm. But usually we just say go test and it builds and right. compiles and runs it for you. Well, that's the value is telling you where you violated your assumptions, not being right. able to see the C stuff. So yeah. Right. Do you have some favorite resources? You mentioned the Go blog. Are there any other like books or screencast series or podcasts or anything else that you consume to learn or stay current on? Yeah, there's Go? there's lots of good good stuff. There's um there's the Go blog, which has lots of good stuff. There are a few like YouTube channels with some good stuff. Like Francesc Campoy has a, a channel called Just for Funk, F U N C. That's a great resource. He does all sorts of, he demonstrates just so many things. I think he has like 50 or 100 episodes. It's, it's a bunch. That's a great resource. Um, let's see, there's like a Golang Weekly Twitter bot you can subscribe to. That's got good stuff. What else? Yeah, Golang Weekly is a good one. Uh, Gopher Academy has a blog that mostly just runs at uh, Christmas time. They do an Advent thing. Yeah, those those are the, the main sources, I, I, there's a great book called Writing an Interpreter in Go by Thorsten Ball. That's a good resource for, for beginners that also gives a glimpse into how interpreters work. I think he also has a writing a compiler in Go book now. That's good stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the extent of my resources. There's, a, of course, there's the Clean Coders Go case study video series that you can look into. Mm-hmm. That's, that's also available. Yeah, that's, that's where I would go first. Good stuff. Are there big Go conferences out there? Oh, there are. Yeah, there's Go for Con. Well, not right now. There aren't Go conferences. There's no conferences. <laughs> yeah, well. But in the past, you know, Go for Con's great. I think there's lots of lots of spin-off Go for Con conferences. There's probably a meetup or a, a user group in your area that you can look up as well. Those are great. 
I went to GopherCon in, I think, 2015 or 2016. It's been a while, but great conference. Learned a lot. Probably the, the videos are on YouTube. You can look them up. It's good to follow like the Go team, you know, Rob Pike, Russ Cox, Rob Grissomer. They all have, you know, good things to say. They're, they've been around the block. Most of them were on the Unix, Unix division at Bell Labs. They're, they're, they know their stuff. You can also just dive into the Go project and, and see, I believe there are some issues meant for beginners on the actual Golang GitHub repository. You know, there's documentation that needs to be written. There's, there's also other resources like there's the Gopher Slack community that you can join. There's the Go Bridge forum. Now that I think of it, that's a, another gathering place online to ask questions. There's always Stack Overflow. But yeah, if you're looking for a, a interacting directly with Go community members, the uh, Go Slack channel and Go Bridge are great places to start. There's some really great popular projects you can look into. There's, you know, the Docker and a lot of the uh, HashiCorp tools are written in mm-hmm. Go. There's Caddy, the, the new web server. Good friend of mine, Matt Holt, wrote that. Boy, what else? Hugo, we talked about the blog generator. More and more stuff is, is popping up in Go. It's, it's a great language for distributing tools because you just distribute a binary. We, we offer self-hosted versions of most of our products for enterprise customers. We just give them a Go binary and they run it. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. We can cross-compile for any architecture, which is great. At work, I wrote an address list processor that we give to our customers that subscribe to us. It's it's wicked fast because it makes use of concurrency. It sends batches of a hundred, you know, requests at a time and mm-hmm. just is great. So if you ever have any client or server software that needs to be written, Go is a great fit. Yep. Very cool. Uh, one other thing that I'm curious about. So is most of the Go core team at Google at this point? Oh yeah. The, the language is developed at Google by Google, a Google team. Yeah. It's, it's always been Google that has owned the language. Mm-hmm. and released it. It's open source, which is good. I think it's uh, it's good and bad that it's a big corporation that's heading it up. It means it's got funding, it's got support. And it was originally created to solve problems at Google. Uh, right. it, if you ever download an application like Chrome, or if you're downloading something from Google, that is served by a Go process. Like right. the, the Go downloader well, the, the, the downloader for Google is a Go program. Yeah, and, and they're responsive to issues that you raise. And you know, I'm, I'm working through uh, my own little pull request right now to fix something that, that creeped up in this last release of Go. And, and they're, they're helping me through the, the first-time contribution process. It's, it's good. Yep. There's a process for proposing changes to the language. They've thought through a lot of those issues with the community. Yeah, it's it's interesting because my exposure to Google has mostly been through the Angular team, which is another mm. Google project. And so, yeah, it's to me, it's interesting. It's like I wonder how the two compare. And you know, the the Angular team's been very accessible to people. They go out of their way to make sure people know that they care and things like that. And yeah, I just I was just curious if the Go team is you know if they're out there front and center if they're driving the community forward and just how involved they are versus, you know, just being in the weeds working on a Go compiler. Yeah, I, I think they're pretty responsive and they're, they're always trying to improve as well. Certain experiments that the community 
has gotten behind didn't end up panning out and and the the go team chose a different direction the modules right. support is a good example of that for a while there was a tool called godep i think it was godeps or something like that and everyone thought that was going to be the 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 experiment that became the actual mm-hmm. package manager but it didn't go kind of took a different direction and, and that created some i think some angst in the community for a while but but I've, like I say, I've really enjoyed that module system. So in general, I, I, I trust that the Go team is going to do the right thing and, and mm-hmm. keep releasing helpful software for us to build with. And, and that's, that's been great. So what do Go pra- programmers argue about then? Like what, what, uh, this versus that or things like that? Well, the, well <laughs> most Go pra- programmers probably aren't arguing too much if if you agree with all the opinions and all the recommendations, there's nothing to argue about. It's it's only people like me who feel a need right. to go against the grain that are arguing, probably. And it's not really <laughs> arguing. We just we just do our own thing, and right. and that's just what we do. Some of our yeah. more public libraries, like our our Go SDK at Smarty Streets, we have tried to follow more of the community conventions because the purpose of that SDK is to get community adoption, and so we. But for all of our internal stuff, we just we do it the way we want to do it. Makes sense. And I like that the language is open enough that you can, right? Yeah. I For, for me, mostly, it's just I, I don't like people telling me how to name my variables. I'll, I'll yeah. do that myself. Thank you very much. So I, I hope the compiler never like tries to enforce uh, yeah. non-generic receiver names or something weird like that. Another interesting thing about naming in Go that I should mention is in, in languages like Java you have to add a public or a private keyword to change the accessibility mm-hmm. of, a, of a name or an identifier. In Go, accessibility is determined by the first character of a name being uppercase or lowercase. Uppercase oh, means it's exported, which means other packages can look in and see that identifier and use it. A lowercase name means it's not exported and it's internal to that package. Hmm. And that, that at first you think, yeah, that, that's cool. That's, that's really clever and, and saves space. We don't have to type public and private anymore. But it also means that whenever you change the accessibility of a type, all of the usages have to be updated. Right. So mixed bag there. I, I would prefer just having a little public or private keyword personally. Yeah. But that's just me. I'm not a language designer. I just, I just have opinions. Yeah. Cool. Well... I think we've pretty well exhausted this. If people want to learn more and they want to reach out to you, is there a good place to find you? Yeah, just on Twitter, MD Whatcott, or you send me an email, Mike at smartystreets.com. Yeah, I'd love to chat with anybody or code with anybody. We're all just sitting at home. We can, we can open a Zoom call and do some coding together. That'd be fun. Sounds good. All right, well, thank you, Michael. Uh, this has been really fun. Thanks, and, Chuck. Uh, yeah, hopefully the next one we do, we can do back at a restaurant. <laughs> That'd be nice, yeah. 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 See how long this lasts. Yep. All right. Good deal. Well, thanks again for uh, hopping on with me. Until next time, everybody, max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.